Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. This is Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And it is Tuesday, November 8th, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. As many of you know, I'm broadcasting from Panama, and since the time zones have changed, or the daylight savings time has changed up north, our time does not change down here, so we just move back and forth between time zones, keeping the same time. Okay, tonight's topic is five antibiotic myths that could kill you. This is serious. If your doctor has told you any of these myths, your life has been endangered. As always, think happens. But first, let's take a look at like, what's going on and who cares and why is this important anyway. Well, antibiotics kill quite a few people every year. The government has actually more or less stopped counting and even reclassified these uh, infections, which is, of course, a shame. But antibiotics kill uh, through many mechanisms. One mechanism uh, that antibiotics kill through is the appearance of resistant organisms. You can't have an antibiotic-resistant organism kill somebody unless, well, it's exposed to antibiotics. This is how antibiotic organisms arise. Now, truth be told, every person has one or two antibiotic organisms in their body that may arise spontaneously. However, one or two organisms is not enough to kill people. So how does one or two organisms become several million, overcome your immune system, and kill you? Answer, antibiotic exposure. So pretty much the only way to die from an antibiotic-resistant infection is to be exposed to antibiotics. Therefore, any death, due to resistant organisms, can be said to be caused by iatrogenesis. In other words, exposure to medical therapy or medical intervention. That is one huge thing. Now, another source of death from antibiotics is people take antibiotics and they commit suicide. just makes them think, like, oh, might be better off dead. And the quinolone antibiotics, one of which would be ciprofloxacin, 
um, are known for causing this problem. So taking antibiotics is not a trivial matter. How many Americans actually die each year from antibiotics? The estimate is somewhere around 100,000. To put this in perspective, this is approximately four times the number that die from homicide. That means bang, bang, you're dead. This is uh, three times the number, two to three times the number that die in car accidents. And everyone's all-time boogeyman, six times the number that die of AIDS each year. So antibiotics, I mean, if you would use condoms to keep from getting AIDS, you definitely should avoid antibiotics because it is the bigger threat of the two. Now, the statistics on antibiotic deaths has been in large part um, obfuscated. What does that mean? That means that the method of tracking this has become so confusing it's difficult to trace. However, the deaths from MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, you know, has been in recent years quoted as 18,650. Now, this number has declined from a high of 45,000. However, the definition of a MRSA infection has been changed. Clostridium uh, difficile is another infection. Uh, the deaths from Clostridium difficile annually are estimated to be more or less 30,000. So how do you get C. difficile? Well, you get Clostridium difficile by being treated with vancomycin. What is vancomycin? Vancomycin is a treatment for MRSA. So you get MRSA, they treat you. You get C. difficile as a result of the treatment, you die of C. difficile. What's the C. difficile death rate, or death number? I won't talk about a rate quite yet, but a number, about 30,000. This brings a total to 48,000. Then what about vancomycin-resistant enterococcus? Hmm. Vancomycin-resistant enterococcus is a, a very bad actor. These uh, enterococcus are normal bacteria in your gut. That's why they're called enterococci. However, when they become bacterial resistant, then um, they kill at a rate of between 37% and 100%. Medical industrial complex is trying to sort that out. And they believe the death rate, death number annually for vancomycin-resistant enterococcus is more or less 15,000. Now, so we've got 30, 48, 58, about 63,000 deaths per year that we can account for based on recent numbers. Now, here's a problem. The problem is, is that these deaths occur due to antibiotic therapy. Well, you might want to ask, how many people every year are dying from, well, infections, infections of any and all cause? It turns out that the death from infection is these deaths are all added into the infection number. So the infection number is somewhere around 60,000 a year. You got it. It looks like the antibiotics are causing most of the infection-related deaths in the United States. So it's very important then for you to have some type of understanding about myths surrounding antibiotics and the belief of these myths can lead your doctor to prescribe antibiotics dangerously and in such a way as to risk your life. So let's go with these myths. Now, these myths showed up in your doctor's inbox on October 20th, 2016. 
So your doctor can't say he doesn't know because he, I'm sure, has email. And so this is sent out by Medscape Family Medicine. So maybe he's not a family medicine doctor, but I suspect this is available to him as well. Okay. What is myth number one? Myth number one is humans invented antibiotics in the 20th century. Now, this is a very important myth to understand because humans have been treating infections successfully prior to the 20th century. And there are many natural solutions to infections. In other words, the myth that humans invented antibiotics in the 20th century would lead your doctor, if you believe this, to prescribe only pharmaceutical products as a solution to infection. So let's see what this uh, note written by Brad Spelling, MD, sent to your doctor's inbox via Medscape Family Medicine. Let's see what their take on this myth is. The first clinically useful antibacterial agent that was safe and effective was a sulfa drug synthesized in 1931. However, this was not the first antibacterial agent to be invented, and humans were not the initial inventors. Genetic analysis indicates that bacteria invented antibiotics and an antibiotic-resistant mechanism somewhere between 2 and 2.5 billion years ago. Bacteria have been killing each other with these weapons and using resistance mechanisms to protect themselves against these weapons for 20 million times longer than we have even known that antibiotics exist. To underscore the point, in 2011, a study was published in which investigators explored a deep cave in the Carlsbad Cavern system in New Mexico, a geological formation that has been isolated from the surface of the planet for 4 million years. The section of the cave that they explored had never before been accessed by humans. And the investigators cultured many different types of bacteria from these caves. Every strain of bacteria was resistant to at least one modern antibiotic. Most were multi-drug resistant. Not only was resistance found to naturally occur, naturally occurring antibiotics, but was also found to synthetic drugs that were not created until the 60s and 80s, including fluoroquinolones, daptomycin, and linazolid. Implications of busting this myth. So we're going to do their implications, and I'll tell you my implications. After 2 billion years of microbial evolutionary warfare, microbes have already invented antibiotics to poison every possible biochemical pathway and resistance mechanisms to protect every one of those pathways. So let me give you the English translation of this. Each antibiotic is said to work by poisoning an, uh, a bacteria through a certain method. And this method is called a biochemical pathway. And what they're saying is bacteria have found a way to protect every one of those pathways, from interference by antibiotics. It says, thus, resistance mechanisms to antibiotics that have not yet been invented are already widespread in nature. Resistance is inevitable. So now there's another implication. Another implication is that killing microbes may not be the best way to get rid of an infection. When this occurred to me in my medical practice, I was crushed. I had to sit down. I had to catch my breath. 
because I had been taught in medical school that the only way to handle infections was to prescribe an antibiotic. If a person was indeed infected, an antibiotic had to be prescribed. So the other implication of this myth that uh, every antibiotic has already resistance existing and there is already resistance bred into future antibiotics because of the way they work is that inventing antibiotics is not going to solve the antibiotic-resistant issue. So it makes no sense then to research new antibiotics because antibiotics as a way of coping with or mitigating infections is flawed. Logically, it cannot work because organisms are already resistant. So then there must be another mechanism for handling infections. We're going to talk about that when we get through with the five myths. So the first myth is that humans invented antibiotics in the 20th century, and the corollary myth is that inventing more antibiotics or better antibiotics can solve infectious issues. And because of the first myth and what they've said here, inventing new antibiotics is not the answer to antibiotic resistance or even to infection itself. What's the second myth? So in other words, if your doctor tells you that we're waiting for newer, bigger, better antibiotics, this is a new antibiotic and it's going to work, he lied to you because that statement is based upon a myth. And the myth is that there are biochemical pathways that don't have resistance. Okay. Myth number two. Inappropriate antibiotic use causes the development of resistance. This is a huge, huge myth, and I'm so happy that the medical industrial complex itself has decided to come clean on this. So this myth is often repeated with the implication that if we could eliminate inappropriate antibiotic use, resistance would no longer develop. However, all antibiotic use causes resistance. Get this? Appropriate antibiotic use causes the development of resistance. Every bit as much as inappropriate antibiotic use. So eliminating inappropriate antibiotic use is not going to eliminate resistance. Let's see what they have to say about this. However, all antibiotic use causes killing off of bacteria. Appropriate use applies the same selective pressure as does inappropriate use. The difference is that we can and should stop inappropriate use because it offers no benefit. In contrast, appropriate antibiotic use is necessary to reduce mortality and morbidity from bacterial, bacterial infections. Now, this is not necessarily true <coughs> because many infections left untreated by antibiotics do perfectly well. But what are the implications of this? Well, we accept that there will always be emergence of resistance from appropriate antibiotic use. But the benefit of appropriate antibiotic use to patients and society outweighs the collective harm. There's no evidence. There's absolutely no evidence of this. None. Especially when most deaths from infection occur from antibiotic-resistant infections. 
In contrast, without a benefit attached to inappropriate use, there's no pro to offset the con of selective pressure for antibiotic resistance. In essence, we must seek to eliminate inappropriate antibiotic use, and not because this will end the emergence of resistance, because it will slow it down without forgoing any meaningful benefit of antibiotic use. Now, a lot of people who die from antibiotic resistance receive prophylactic antibiotics. In other words, they receive antibiotics from an infection they did not even have. Yeah, that's right. You let that sink in. Dying from antibiotics given to you for an infection you don't even have. Now, the other thing which is not even suggested here, is, is it possible that all antibiotic use could be inappropriate? Is that possible? Yeah, I think it's possible. In my medical practice, when I started healing people with natural means, I realized that there was no such thing as an appropriate antibiotic. That was a shocker. Again, I had to sit down and say to myself, wow, was I misled in medical school or what? And people came to me with infections. I mean, awful, atrocious infections that could not be cured or remedied with modern medicine because they'd already been to the specialist. I was not anyone's first choice, right? Why, why would someone come see me? I didn't take insurance. That's not good. I would recommend things that they hadn't heard about in the 6 o'clock news. That was definitely not good. And I was going to ask them to participate in their care, like, you know, make a lifestyle change or eat a vegetable or something. That was, like, seriously not good. So people, by the time they saw me, had already tried the Dr. Cure Me route, which is, okay, Doc, here I am. Give me a needle. Give me a pill. Boom, I'm done. Okay, thanks. So uh, one guy that came to see me, this burly guy who uh, worked, Actually, pouring concrete was what he did. And um, he had been diagnosed as having uh, a mixed connective tissue autoimmune disease, which was very rare back then for a white male to have such a condition. But anyway, he had the diagnosis. And he had been to specialists, and they had had him on pregnisone for uh, some time. He came to see me because he was just, uh, he just couldn't function anymore. And as I took a look at him, he had boils all over his body. And these were, these were not small boils. These were pretty big, like uh, three inches in diameter, purple raised boils on his arms, his legs, chest, back. I took a look at this and I said, hmm, there is no antibiotic strong enough to address this that will not kill him. And... So, of course, I did not give him an antibiotic. Instead, we changed his diet, put him on vitality capsules, and literally the guy pooped out uh, the pus from these boils. That's what he did. He just pooped it out. Changed his diet, of course, to stop putting in any, uh, any foreigners. But the point is, it's not inappropriate antibiotic use that causes resistance. It's any antibiotic use causes resistance. Any. Now, the idea that there are pros to antibiotic use that outweigh the cons, that's a matter of opinion, not scientific fact for sure. Again, if you just take a look at the death statistics in the United States, how many people total are dying of all infections combined? And then how many are dying 
of antibiotic-resistant infections, you can see that uh, the preponderance of the deaths are from antibiotic resistance. That's myth number two. So if your doctor told you inappropriate antibiotic use causes resistance, and he's using antibiotics appropriately, therefore you don't have to worry, that is a lie. Setting you up for the big MRSA or having your life devastated by antibiotic use. And what is myth number three? So number three is to prevent resistance, patients must complete every dose of antibiotics prescribed, even after they feel better. This is such a huge lie that it, it really should be humiliating for the medical profession. Every single doctor has been taught from the very beginning, and I only started medical school in 1979, but I can certainly tell you it was being taught then. With every increasing antibiotic dose, the risk of developing an antibiotic-resistant infection increases. So if, I, if the doctor tells you to take this antibiotic every day for 10 days, each day you take that antibiotic, you are at risk of developing antibiotic-resistant infection that can end your life. So you should only take the antibiotic until you're feeling better, and then boom, stop it. So what do they say? The origins of this myth are slightly obscure, (laughs) but it appears to date back to the 1940s. It doesn't have to be obscure. This is my commentary. Obviously, this myth was started by the people who make antibiotics so they could sell more antibiotics. So despite how widespread and deeply this myth is held, there are no data to support the idea that continuing antibiotics past resolution of signs and symptoms of infection reduces the emergence of antibiotic resistance. In other words, there's no data to support this myth. None. In other words, not even manufactured data. Usually, I mean, every lie has at least one study supporting it, but this one is saying there's none. Not one study supporting this. No data to support it at all. Just a rumor taught to students in medical school, without evidence, under the pretense that there was evidence. This is part of the 50% of stuff that was false at the time it was taught. and should have been known to be false. Why? (laughs) Because if in medical school they had just demanded that everything they teach us in medical school have at least one study supporting it, that would knock out at least 75% of all the fake stuff they taught us. Some of the stuff in medical school was just made up. So it says, to the contrary, studies have repeatedly found that shorter course therapies are less likely to create antibiotic resistance, which is consistent with fundamental principles of natural selection. Every randomized clinical trial that has ever compared short course therapy with longer course therapy across multiple types of bacterial infections, and they give a list, cellulitis, bacterial sinusitis, community-acquired pneumonia, nosocomial pneumonia, ventilator-assisted pneumonia, complicated urinary tract infection, and complicated intra-abdominal infections, has found that shorter course therapies are just as effective. Now, this is important. So what they're saying then 
is once the symptoms have improved, antibiotics should be stopped. So you should not wait until you get two negative blood cultures or even one negative blood culture. If the patient is looking better and feeling better, that's a reason to stop the antibiotics. When evaluated, shorter course therapies have resulted in less emergence of resistance. Now, let's not beat around the bush about this. Let's cut to the chase. Less resistance means less resistant infections, which means less deaths from resistant organisms. So this is not a trivial matter. The implications of busting this myth. This is their interpretation. I'll give you mine. This myth needs to be replaced by a new antibiotic mantra. Shorter is better. Patients should be told that if they feel substantially better with resolution of symptoms of infection, they should call, wait, listen to what they're telling them, call the clinician to determine whether antibiotics can be stopped early. So at all points, the patients should subordinate themselves to the will of their doctor, no matter what that will might be. And now they're going to tell the clinicians, in case you don't know what to do, Clinicians should be receptive to this concept and don't fear customizing the duration of therapy. And so they're telling, saying patients should call the doctor before they do anything, and you doctors should then give the patient permission to stop the antibiotics early. Well, I'm giving you guys a heads up, right? You heard it from the horse's mouth, from Medscape. Medical Industrial Complex itself says there is no benefit to taking your antibiotics a minute beyond when your symptoms resolve. So continuing antibiotics past resolution of symptoms for acute bacterial infections does not afford patient benefit and probably creates antibiotic resistance. This is huge. This is a big deal. Myth four. When antibiotic resistance emerges, it is usually a consequence of new mutations at the site of infection. Hmm. This myth possibly stems from the correct recognition that resistance in tuberculosis patients occurs at the site of infection, owing to spontaneous mutations targeting tuberculosis therapy. However, tuberculosis has unique features distinct from those of most acute bacterial infections. There is no environmental reservoir for GB. This is not true. The environmental reservoir of tuberculosis is, as we know, the cowpox, right? So it's milk, so infected cows in milk. At any rate, let's see what they have to say. Tuberculosis is not part of our normal flora. That is true. Therefore, tuberculosis resistance can only occur at the site of infection in the body. Now, what they said here, which may have escaped your notice, part of our normal flora, these infections that are being treated, whether it's uh, staph, C. difficile, enterobacter, are all normal flora. Human beings have C. difficile in their body. Human beings have staph in their body, healthy human beings. Healthy human beings have enterobacter in their, in their bodies. So all these so-called infections, your doctor's fighting with antibiotics, he's actually fighting your normal bacteria that are there under healthy circumstances. E. coli, your body is filled with E. coli. 
So what's an infection? An infection is a normal bacteria, normal harmless bacteria that leaves its spot in your body and ends up in another spot where it causes an infection. So an E. coli in your intestines, where it belongs, not a problem. Same E. coli in your bladder can cause a urinary tract infection. That's a problem. And so dealing with it with antibiotics, that's a second problem added to the first problem. But most, anti- most infections that doctors treat with antibiotics, they are actually going to war with your normal bacteria that are present in a healthy body and normally don't cause problems. Okay, so what are they saying? So TB is not part of our normal flora. In other words, the other infections usually treated are part of the normal flora. And so what they're saying then is in contrast, when we, that's doctors, use typical antibiotics, the antibiotics inevitably cause selective pressure among a person's normal bacterial flora. In most cases, resistance emerges not at the site of infection during a course of therapy, but rather among bacteria in the gut or on the skin as a result of genetic sharing of pre-existing resistance mechanisms like plasmids, um, transposons, phages, and naked DNA. Now, I practice medicine, so I can show you, share you, with you my experience. So when I would treat people who had sinusitis, and I would treat them with um, antibiotics, and back then the standard of care was people with sinusitis would get two weeks of antibiotics with a few days of pause, and then more antibiotics, and so on. And so literally, a person with sinusitis could get easily 12 weeks of antibiotics. So I had a patient with sinusitis that I was treating according to the standard of care. And I said, you know, let me just check these sinuses. Let me do a nasal swab and see what's going on here. Whoa. I found C. difficile. So Clostridium difficile is, don't want that. What is C. diff? It's deadly. And so I realized that I had given this person C. difficile by the use of all these antibiotics. So, of course, what I did, totally opposed to the standard, totally the opposite of the standard of care. I stopped the antibiotics. I said, well, you know what? She could sure live with a sinus infection, but if C. diff kills her, well, that's the end of that. So thank God she didn't have any symptoms of C. difficile, stopped the antibiotic, and the C. difficile resolved by itself. And then I explained to her, of course, the situation. She agreed to some dietary changes, and her sinus, was, uh, sinus problem went away. So the deal here is, so what I found then was that mutations do occur at the site of infection. Now, it may occur other parts of the body. Certainly with the C. difficile, if she had started getting abdominal pain and frequent diarrhea, then yes, that it would have spread to the uh, intestines as well. But um, I thought to myself, you know, this doesn't seem right. Let me do a culture. And sure enough, she had resistant uh, infection. I said, well, let's just stop right now. So enrichment for a resistant normal flora can result in future infections caused by the resistant pathogens and spread of the resistant pathogens through contact with other people or, or fomites. What's a fomite? 
Fulmite is the famous uh, doorknob. <laughs> yes. So they're telling you somebody who has, uh, say, methicillin-resistant staph can open the doorknob with their hand, leaving resistant staph on the doorknob, and someone else could pick up the resistant staph by turning the same doorknob. That's not exactly true because that person who touches the fomite, which is basically inanimate object, shared, shared object, can just wash their hands and then they're done. So unless that second person licks their hands after touching the fomite or fails to wash their hands before eating, basically, um, they're fine. This, this organism does not, and most bacteria do not penetrate the skin, in other words, externally, unless you have a break in the skin. So here's a plug for telling us that, yeah, this is contagious. No, it's not. The other person who's touching the fomite, let's say the door handle or the toilet seat, would wash this off their body with their next shower or wash it from their hands before they ingest it. So um, you can't, you cannot in a regular environment, which is basically people living in a household together, you can't spread antibiotic resistance. What about uh, resistant bacteria? What about through sex? Okay, so you have sex and someone else has MRSA and you have sex with that person. That person can't give you their MRSA. Why? Because you don't have an antibiotic-rich environment in your body. And so this resistant MRSA is just going to be um, outnumbered. And number one, number two, it will not have a biological advantage because it's wasting its energy creating this resistant plasmid, which is totally unnecessary. And so the other non-resistant bacteria that are not manufacturing this elaborate protection mechanism are going to literally outnumber it, and the infection just won't. It won't take. It won't stick. But this is another myth, another lie they're telling your doctor, and they're putting this lie inside of (laughs) dispelling yet another lie. There's just so many of them. Um, So implications of busting this myth. In most cases, we are not aware when resistance emerges in patients. The fact that the patient's infection resolves with prolonged or unnecessarily broad antibiotic therapy does not mean that you have escaped inducing resistance. Now, this is something you, as a potential patient, should understand. That just because you take a course of antibiotics and everything seems okay, it doesn't mean everything is okay. You, you could have a much higher population of resistant bacteria in your body waiting to do you in when you have, say, a cut in the skin and resistant bacteria that your body has successfully managed by expelling them to your skin surface, then re-enter your body in, uh, through the blood and introduce into your blood system. That's bad news. And that's what happens when you, people are admitted to hospitals and IVs are started. What causes the resistant bacteria is a resistant bacterial infection. In many cases, is the resistant bacteria already in the person's system. And by the needle that's used to start the IV, piercing the skin, piercing the fascia under the skin, piercing the wall of the blood vessel, and literally creating a track for any resistant organisms to track into the bloodstream, that is, uh, that's what, what causes the problem. And so to the contrary, it's very likely that after exposure to antibiotics, somewhere in the patient's body, strains of normal flora that are resistant to the antibiotics 
youth have been enriched. In other words, their percentage of the population has increased. Those strains can cause future infections or spread to others in communities or hospitals. Now, it can cause future infections in the person who has it. it the likelihood of it spreading to other human beings is just about zero because, again, these organisms need an antibiotic-rich environment to thrive. They cannot thrive in an antibiotic-poor environment. In fact, there have been studies showing that if you have 100 people with methicillin-resistant staph and you withdraw antibiotics in 30 days, one-third of those will no longer have resistant MRSA or resistant antibiotic or resistant staph. So we know the cure. The cure is to stop using antibiotics. And you, again, you cannot spread it to another person unless you spread it through a break in that person's skin. And this is why it's so easy to pick up infections in the hospital. Because people in the hospital have IVs, which means they have a break in their skin. And that is the way it's transmitted. If people have a break in their skin, either through an IV, through um, an ulcer starting from them laying in bed too long, or it climbs along the tubing of their um, urinary catheter, which, of course, they usually don't need. So the myth is antibiotic resistance, when it emerges, is a consequence of new mutations at the site of infection. Another myth that they mention here, though, is that when antibiotic resistance emerges, you'll know it. And unfortunately, usually you don't. And this is why so called hospital-acquired MRSA is becoming so prevalent. It's because of the wide use, widespread use of antibiotics and the presence of antibiotics in the food. So people in the community have MRSA. The MRSA is just in their bodies. And when there's a break in the skin or some other compromise of the immune system, boom, they succumb. And finally, oh, this one, this is a big one. Cidal antibiotics. Now, cidal, uh, we need an English translation here, is just antibiotics that kill organisms, result in superior clinical outcomes and less risk of emergence of resistance than do static antibiotics. So static antibiotic does not kill the organism, but just stops the organism from growing, whereas a cidal antibiotic kills the organism. These are terms. Now, it actually... Um, as with all terms, it's important to know your definitions. Now, without telling you the definition, I'm going to tell you the definition, but before I do, I want to tell you what we were taught in medical school. This myth was actually taught in medical school. And it's outrageous for uh, this email to doctors to say that these are myths that are debunked. These aren't myths. Uh, put forth by patients or by common, uneducated lay people. No, these are myths that were all taught in medical school when I went to medical school. And these are myths that are actually were still being taught as recently as uh, certainly five years ago uh, throughout continuing medical education. And so we were taught in medical school, you always want to use a cidal antibiotic when you can and not use a static antibiotic. So just to let you know, the way the medical industrial complex measures if an antibiotic is alive is if it multiplies and has babies. So a static antibiotic, when it prevents the, antibi- and the um, bacteria from reproducing but doesn't kill it, 
it would show up on culture as, as dead because it doesn't reproduce. Whereas a cytal antibiotic, which results supposedly in killing the bacteria, again, it, it would show up the same. The culture would, would be the same. So here's what they say. This is another widespread clinical belief that is based on no evidence. Again, again, this was taught in medical school. I mean, the guy had a straight face. He said it was such conviction. He gave so many examples. And now we say, now we're told it's based on no evidence. You know, I think if they required evidence in medical school, a lot of this fake stuff might not be taught to your doctor. Anyway, so contrary to common belief, bacteriostatic, Antibiotics do kill bacteria. They just require a higher concentration to achieve specific thresholds of bacterial reduction. A higher dose, more side effects, more danger from the antibiotic. The formal definition of a bacterial cytal antibiotic is one for which the minimum bacterial concentration of the drug is fourfold or more above the minimum inhibitory concentration of the drug. Uh, these are just technical terms of what happens on the agar plate. So the concentration of the drug that results in a 1,000-fold reduction in bacterial density at 24 hours of growth, that's MBC, whereas the MIC, minimum inhibitory concentration, is concentration that inhibits visible growth at 24 hours. These definitions are arbitrary. What does that mean? It means they're not scientific. It means you just kind of pull them out the, ha- out the air. So why should it be that Minimum bacterial concentration requires a 1,000-fold reduction in bacterial density as opposed to a 100, 500, 5,000, or 10,000-fold reduction. Why 24 hours? Why must the MBC not be more than fourfold above the MIC as opposed to twofold or 16-fold or 23-fold? Answer, we don't know. They just made it up. A lot of medicine is like this. They just made it up. Finally, an antibiotic that achieves more than 1,000-fold reduction in bacterial density but does so at a concentration that is eight-fold above the MIC, minimum inhibitory concentration of the drug, is considered static, even though it clearly kills the bacteria. So in other words, the ratio of concentrations of the drug needed to uh, reduce the bacterial density versus to inhibit the growth it's just an arbitrary thing. If the final recommended dose of the antibiotic achieves a 1,000-fold reduction in bacterial density, then um, it's effective, period. Given that these terms have been defined by accepted convention and are not based on specific scientific principles, now get this, these terms have been defined by convention. That means Guys got in a room, had a drink, shook hands, and said, this is what we agree on. Not scientific principles. Perhaps it is not surprising that there is no clinical evidence of benefit of cytal agents over static agents. A systematic literature review identified 28 randomized controlled trials that compared the effectiveness of static versus cytal antibiotics head-to-head for patients with invasive bacterial infection. That's a pretty serious infection. And so the studies all show no significant difference, no significant difference. And three studies showed the static drug was superior. One showed the cytal drug was superior. And about, see, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen studies 
showed that there was no significant difference. So, um, another myth put to bed. Now, the important thing, it's not so much that these are five myths about antibiotics, of course they are, but each one of these myths was taught in medical school as if it were fact, and each one of these myths has absolutely no supporting research. So medical school, your doctor is told that you need research and studies to support information, and then they proceed to teach the students information that has no research whatever supporting it, allowing the student in his mind to presume or think that there must be supporting information somewhere. Okay, so almost no trials found a significant difference in effectiveness between static versus cytal. The exceptions, three studies, as I said, found the static agent to be superior. And one study found the cytal agent to be superior. And so... This is really uh, outrageous. So in contrast, only one that found a cytal antibiotic to be superior in effectiveness to static agent, that trial compared two antibiotics to treatment of ventilator-associated pneumonia and found that the cytal agent was superior. However, pharmacologic analysis determined that the dose used in the trial was too low, resulting in inadequate drug levels compared with the substance susceptibility of bacteria causing the infections. So in other words, they found a defect in the trial. The implications of busting this myth, although clinicians continue to prefer cytal antibiotics, no, this is because they were taught to. I know, I sat there, I was in medical school. So these, these doctors aren't making up these myths. They are actually taught these myths in medical school. There's no evidence these result in superior clinical outcomes than static agents, nor that cytal drugs more effectively prevent the emergence of resistance. Whether an antibiotic is static or cytal should not be a factor in determining antibiotic therapy for patients. And uh, I agree with this. And when I did use antibiotics in the old days, whether it was cytal or static actually had no, uh, no impact, whatever. So this is really, this is absolutely astounding. So the take-home message here is that a lot of what your doctor is being taught in medical school is actually myth. And indeed, as you can see in this article, even with, as they were replacing the myth, they are replacing the myth with even more myths. So implications are that it doesn't make a difference. Take-home message, there is no end to our struggle with bacteria we will never win a war against them, and no gorilla psyllin will ever come along to save us from emergence of antibiotic resistance. Resistance is inevitable. And the implication of that is it makes no sense to fund research for more antibiotics. Now, their thing is, it is critical we not waste antibiotics. and must not be prescribed to patients who do not have bacterial infections. The only way to know that is to do a culture and wait three days for the culture to come back. And to stop all prophylactic antibiotic use. Never use an antibiotic for a patient who does not have an infection. And that means no prophylactic antibiotic use. When appropriate, prescribe the narrowest spectrum agent and the shortest duration possible to treat bacterial infections. Do not instruct patients to take every dose prescribed, even after they feel better. 
Rather focus on evidence-based short course regimens and the patient's symptoms resolve before completing the course of therapy, ask that they call you to discuss whether they should stop the antibiotic course early. Well, who the heck needs all these extra phone calls? Just tell the patient. If you, get, if you feel better before 10 days, by golly, stop it as, the antibiotic as soon as you feel better. Easy beans. Do not be falsely reassured by the lack of emergence of resistance at the site of infection. When you prescribe an antibiotic, you are selecting for resistance in the patient's microbiome. The resistant bacteria colonize the patient and can cause future antibiotic-resistant infections. And that is what they say. So what do I say? I say that antibiotics, in my experience, have no place in the treatment of infection. That is what I have reluctantly found. You have to get at the source of the infection, which is what? Get rid of that Foley catheter and put, that, put a diaper on that patient. Remove the IV and have the patient drink, if he at all can. And extubate or take that tube out of the patient in the intensive care unit as soon as is possible. And so the doctors do so much that creates and causes infections. So the thing to do then is to hydrate the person so the immune system can flush the infection out, empty the bowels, you know, use vitality capsules, go check out vitalitycapsules.com, get those bowels clear, Put the person on a clean diet of organic foods uh, with raw vegetables and cooked vegetables and some type of starch like brown rice, black rice, or red rice. And turpentine. And I have never failed to clear an infection. It has never failed. Now, a lot of times what I'll do, that's for serious infections. For less serious infections, I'll just increase the person's hydration and give them garlic capsules. Why? In my observation in my medical practice, at no point has penicillin ever been superior to garlic. <laughs> Another disappointment. Um, shocking. Absolutely, absolutely shocking. And so if you have an infection, the thing to do is flush out the area where the infection is. If you have sinusitis, sinus infection, get out the neti pot. Flush it out with, the, with salt water. If you have what you think is an abdominal uh, infection, peritonitis, flush it out with either um, castor oil or an enema. You know, if you have um, a skin infection, you know, wipe it off with soap and water, and then dab it with turpentine. So cleaning the body out is far superior as a method of getting rid of infections. Okay, we have eight minutes left. And let's see, we got a lot of action here in the in the chat room. Let's see what we got here. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, a lot of gossip here. We're not going to repeat gossip. So, Dr. Daniels, are they really saying? Don't trust your gut instincts or trust how you feel. Only trust your doctor's analysis of whether he or she determines you're healthy or not. They're, well, this is geared towards doctors, not patients. So what they're telling doctors is you must not allow or suggest to patients that their feelings are 
relevant or that they are qualified to interpret their feelings. You must always tell your patients to call you with how they feel so you can interpret it for them. And when they call you telling you that they feel better with their antibiotics, then you give them permission to stop them. So they're trying to tell the doctor, do not give up your authority over the patient. Do not share power with the patient. Do not say to the patient, you know what? I'm giving you this antibiotics for 10 days, but if you, when you start feeling better, you can just stop it and just flush the rest of the antibiotics. That's what they're really saying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, actually, Janice, who are these certain people who are medicalizing every decision a person makes and attempting to get the patient to put themselves under doctor control and telling a doctor he must exercise it. Um, I I think the thing to understand is this is all about control, period. A lot of people like to follow the money trail, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's, I I, I don't agree with that. It is all about control. And um, obviously the government, the government which licenses the drugs, licenses the doctors, licenses the hospitals, uh, you know, that's who's in charge here. Okay. Oh, got five minutes here. Doing pretty good. Dr. Daniels, it appears to me that the food is a great contributor to illness. Is it, are these, uh, diagnosis being manufactured to conceal the real culprit in people's health? The answer is absolutely, absolutely. The medical industrial complex is totally dedicated to not acknowledging the environmental, chemical, food, water impact on people's health and instead say, oh, you have an autoimmune disease. (coughs) You're not poisoned with vaccines and processed food. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's, it's an autoimmune disease that came from, well, we don't know where. And when someone tells you they don't know where your disease came from, what they're really doing is practicing voodoo. They're telling you this fell out the sky. Maybe it was a bad curse, or maybe you didn't pay proper homage to God, to for God you believe in. So, it, it, you know, it's simply voodoo dressed up in a white coat. And we can't say it's science because we see here there is no evidence. For each one of these myths, there's no evidence. In other words, no evidence means at no point was this myth had any basis in fact that people just didn't look. It was just made up, and somehow it was made up and uniformly taught to every single medical student at every single medical school. And so obviously that's not a coincidence. This is a lie that was made up, as they say, at the highest level. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Dr. Daniels, it took me years to realize the healthcare system was actually less like ER, Grey's Anatomy, and more like the X-Files with the government giving you things they said was supposed to treat you. How crazy is that? The conspiracy perspective is actually the accurate one. <laughs> yes. Yes. Truth is always stranger. Uh, okay. 
Dr. Daniels, <laughs> I am to the point of awareness now where I'm starting to realize pretty much every single thing we've been told to be reality or truth is entirely the opposite. It took a while to get here to this place, but I really feel that way. So now that you are to that place, and it took you so long to get there, it's important to have compassion for other people who might not be there yet. Okay, we are just about the end of the show. So I want to remind people to please go to vitalitycapsules.com and get your updated Candida Cleaning Report version 2.0. Yeah. This uh, new Candida Cleaning Report um, totally simplifies the regimen and throws out all the extra stuff that was added uh, when I cooperated with uh, the raw food expert in its publicity. So this new report, 2.0, has the exact formula I used to cure people very simply and easily in the 90s using turpentine. So that's at vitalitycapsules.com. And as always, think happens. And let me see here. So it's important to to go to vitalitycapsules.com and check out that new report. We have only 10 seconds to go, so we'll see you again next week. 